You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, August the 12th, another gloriously sunny day here in TW11. Again, no sign of the heat wave abating, though temperatures for next week's York Ebor Festival are looking a little more comfortable in the low to mid-20s. Most important news as regards York is that Baid, the world's best horse by any ranking system, including the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings, is set to face a maximum of seven rivals in the Judmont International, including last season's champion juvenile native trail and the defending champion Mishrif. More comment on that later. We've got a scintillating running of the Jacques Lemaua this weekend, which features State of Rest, Caribus, and Inspiral. But all that good stuff is permanently tempered presently by the dialogue surrounding the health of the sport. We spoke earlier in the week about whether many trainers would be able to remain in business. The National Trainers Federation's Paul Johnson has issued a a warning shot across the bows of the sport's governing body today, suggesting that more of his membership may well be on the verge of going bust. What does it take to run a successful training business? One man, perhaps, knows better than any other, Mark Johnston, who has built up one of the most successful businesses anywhere in the world over the last three decades and from scratch as well. He now shares the license with his son Charlie. A little later in the programme, I'll be getting the thoughts of journalist and broadcaster Lydia Hislop. But first to Johnston himself, who I caught breakfasting in Deauville this morning as he was inspecting yearlings at the Arcana sale. And I began by asking him what he felt were at present the biggest threats to the viability of trainers in the UK and whether even he himself had been hit by the present climate. We've got concerns, you know, horse numbers are down very significantly. I'm sure the trainers are going out of business um, because there's going to be a knock-on effect all the way down the line. My first thought is that it's not about, you know, specifically about economic climate at this precise moment or post-COVID or anything like that. It's certainly for us, I think the main thing is the, the shift in... Arab ownership. I would guess they're down significantly and there's a concentration into Godolphin. That's certainly been the main factor for us and I would think that it's it probably has a knock-on effect. I mean, I, I remember you saying to me uh, a few years ago that you thought that there were there were arguably too many trainers in the, in the country. I'm still, I'd still say there are, of course there are, but that doesn't mean to say that the the ones that are going out of business, that, you know, I've, all, I've always said, you know, we're not, um, when I'm sort of been over the years arguing for better prize money and, and so on, um, I'm not arguing for me because we were doing very well. Same as we're not arguing for, I'm not arguing for me when I say it's wrong that we've got small field sizes and um, and loads of non-runners. You know, I'm delighted when we've got small field sizes and loads of non-runners. It's more more winnings for us. Um, but it's but you know we can all see it's bad for the industry. Um, but also, I was not arguing for. Um, the trainers that are 
doing it as a hobby or doing it very badly, arguing for the middle ground of trainers who provide racing for the race courses in the betting industry every day of the week uh, and are struggling to make ends meet. And, and we're seeing some we're seeing some of them go now, aren't we? You know, or or we're certainly seeing some of them under pressure. I mean, you understand the the economies of scale, and 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 you understand how to scale a business. You've done it. You've done it brilliantly. Can you operate a successful business with fifty or sixty horses? Um, yes, um, but you know, when we went into we went into a bad time. You know, probably a time that might be coming again quite soon, and we interest rates soared, and we had pretty significant borrowings well, very significant borrowings and we didn't break even until we went from 44 until 57 horses was the first time we ever broke even so our, our break even point was somewhere around 50 horses at the time the break even point now is around 180 horses so um, and I'm sure that for for you know, it depends on on what your your borrowings are and and so on. But I think it's probably very hard now to be having to you know, make your ends meet with less than fifty horses. But there's trainers around who are your know, small operations, but they've got no borrowings. They inherited the yard or um, wherever, or they're running it alongside another business, and so. Maybe they can make ends meet, but if you were, if if you were looking, for, you know, if you, even if you look at our, our property, you know, if you if you try and see what sort of return you should expect on that level of investment, and and particularly in property, then um, you know it's, it's it's hard it's hard to to make a viable business in the sense that it's giving a good return on the investment. Have you ever built prize money into your business plan? Um, no. If our prize money now is what, three million, um, you know, it's probably sitting about two million at the moment, or just under two million. It'll maybe be three at the end of the year. Um, say we get seven percent of that, so that's two hundred, two hundred ten thousand. Um, which just goes into the that, that's part of the, the 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 income of the business, and that's sitting in a turnover of seven and a half eight million. Um, it keeps the owners paying those trade fees, but but our our percentage of prize money is not significant to us. What the owners get in prize money or in the sale of horses that is significant. Uh, you've you've seen the 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 Peter Savile plan. Is it yeah. is it a is it a plan that you look at and think, yeah, that could work? Yes, yes. You know, it's a, it's a, and it's not a, um, you know, it's not you know some utopia, um, and it's not based on dreams that we you know if you're king for a day you'd have a top monopoly and uh, and massively more income, um, and you probably 
hammer the racecourses and hammer the betting industry. He's not proposing that. He's giving them what they want as well. He's not looking to cut fixtures or maybe, you know, it's very easy to say we've got too many, too much racing. It was quite hard for me to grasp to begin with the idea that you were not going to reduce the uh, the races for the low the class five but are now class fives and sixes um, and that you were actually going to give them more races but he's taking a sort of different approach and saying you know that that's the population at the moment and we have to even out the field sizes so more races for the for, for the population of horses that are there and less races for the 80 and upwards horses because we just don't have them there's just not enough of them but what you have to ensure you know, every morning we are looking at races for for eighty plus horses, and we're weighing up field size against money on offer. So we won't run in a big big field size for eight grand or nine grand to the winner with horses rated above eighty five. Um, but we will run in a big field size if there's plenty money on offer, and that's exactly what Savile's offering, suggesting. He's saying there's going to be far less races for these better class horses but they will run for appropriate money um he's passed the document now onto the bha and i know it's got the approval of an awful lot of, of trainers you included and uh, they say a, a lot of significant racecourse groups is there anything is there anything stopping this happening now uh, uh, there's a, there's an awful lot of talk of inertia at the top of the sport or inertia in leadership at the top of the sport can can you see any reason why this this now can't be built upon and used as a, as a bit of a blueprint? My nervousness would around, be around the representative groups. Um, the RCA, the ROA, the TBA, and even, to some extent, the NTF. Um, and this when, we were, when I was saying to you before, there's too many trainers, I think we were probably having the discussion that we're... It doesn't matter whether it's race courses or trainers, we seem to be driven by the lowest common denominator of looking after the unviable. And if, if those good contributors in the middle ground are going to survive, we're going to have to stop doing that and saying, you know, you've got to be running a decent business before you can expect a decent return. So that's my, my fear is, you know, that the Racecourse Association are not going to like this because they're going to claim that it is not good for the, the Thursks and the Red Cars. Um, the Owners Association who might claim it's not, but, it, but yeah, they, sh they shouldn't. But we've already, we've already seen in the press them uh, looking at Savile's plan and, and ignoring what's in it almost and assuming that he's proposing taking money from the bottom giving it to the top and he isn't but they, they read what they want to see Trainer Mark Johnston there enjoying breakfast in Deauville and not minding an interruption from me Lydia Hislop was listening to that tying together quite a lot of they're not really disparate themes they're quite a lot of related themes Lydia but ones that have been dominating the news in the last 10 days or or two weeks particularly what struck you most there um several things really uh if we can maybe come back to the Peter Savile uh, comments at the end but um the point about um trainers going out of business currently and uh the industry uh, maybe propping up 
unsuccessful businesses um, and not and I don't just mean training op- operations and I'm not and I agree with uh, Mark that uh, it's not a uh, the, the economics don't necessarily always light upon um, those businesses that really should go out of business lots of things can conspire I mean we're in a really tough in- economic climate everybody knows that all costs are spiraling at the moment and uh, necessarily uh, wage costs are going to have to follow to some degree because people have got to live uh, it's difficult for the trainers to pass those costs wholly on to owners and therefore you're getting uh, uh, you're you're getting lots of trainers stuck in an increasingly difficult situation which is um and prize money to some degree is almost but almost beside the point um, and it was interesting to hear mark outlining how his business is not predicated on prize money what did you make of his initial comments that and and he wasn't being dogmatic about it it was just a feeling from his experience of the the gradual effect of the diminution of arab particularly maktoum influence over the sport and the effect that might have yeah i, I think i think that, that is going to be a concern i mean it comes on top of um the uh, owner breeder um type of um owner um dying away uh, and also the increase in um, racing nations like Bahrain um, and elsewhere that don't have their own bloodstock industry that are seeping away. I mean, I think it, it is a factor among many other factors. I mean, and the rise of the super trainer as well is an issue here. Where, and, uh, you know, this is something that you see very much in jump racing, but it's increasingly going that way in flat racing, whereby uh people who you used to know as trainers are now essentially running pre-training establishments for the mega yards that you see uh, here and also in Ireland. Clearly, Mark Johnston has, has advocated a case through his entire training career for a big stable or a stable that is run successfully to scale. What's interesting is that he made the point at whatever level you're training at at the moment, your break-even number of horses is likely to be significantly higher than it was 30 yeah. years ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is no one model, although uh, what we were just talking about, increasingly we're moving more more towards the homo- hom- homogenization at the upper end where the really talented horses largely lie. That is what we're moving towards, the sort of era of super trainer. I mean, if we get, thinking about what he had to say about the uh, Peter Saville um, proposals, see, the problem is with everybody, you know, giving this their, their broad support is that it can only possibly be broad support because nobody's actually seen the detail yet, apart from those is that who, who have written it and have been have been sent the paper. So, I mean, it's all very well and good. Everybody's saying, oh, yes, I definitely support this. Well, how do you know? <laughs> you haven't seen the detail. Well, I, I'm, I'm working on the basis that Mark Johnson is one of those people who has seen it. Well, maybe he has, but he referred, you know, he or you, I can't remember which it was, referred to broad support. I just don't see how there can be broad support when those people who are broadly supporting it don't know the detail. And the devil is always in the detail. He he mentioned about uh, Peter Saville saying that there needs to be a larger number of lower grade races uh, because uh, there are more horses there. And to keep those uh, owners of lower grade horses happy, uh, more opportunities to win it important and I made this point when we spoke in Goodwood Week and yet he makes the opposite argument that um, people who own and train higher rated horses 80 plus horses would actually benefit from fewer races but racing for more prize money and and Mark has made some explanation as why he believes that 
that would work for him but he's essentially what the, this argument essentially says that what is good for higher quality horse uh, people who own high quality horses is not what's good for uh, people who train who own or train lower quality horses so that that has got to really be explained and also what what that is is i mean the B, the bha have a, a, a sort of computer analysis system of their race program it's called the optimum race program and it shows on a weekly basis that there are um, too many uh, races in the fixture list and that there are too um few too many races for um you know 80 plus horses essentially at the, you know the class two level or around that 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 level that there are too many races and the problem with that is it is adjusted um to to meet the fixture list obviously because the fixture list you know accepts itself annually it's not it's not um sensitive and those who have uh, decided how it should be shaped are not sensitive to the horse population we we have seen that um but also there is a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby um if you remove um races of a certain type then horses of that type have less incentive to be trained here to be owned here to exist so that's something that peter savile's uh um proposals is going to have to answer it is he you know whilst whilst trying to get a competition which would be great from a punter perspective great from a race goer perspective is there a how is he going to balance the potential disincentivization of having that level of horses if there are fewer available targets for them um you know certainly that's what the optimum race program shows that once you diminish the number of races uh, you know conditions races classified races whatever you know those races novice chases they they struggle to maintain a, a foothold because they, there isn't enough of the body of those kind of races to justify horses being targeted at them while we're on this subject of of races and what races should and shouldn't be run and trying to make the sport more competitive what were your observations on uh, the release from the BHA yesterday. Now, I I maybe wrongly introduced this on yesterday's podcast as the the fruits of the the quality jump racing review group, but not necessarily the case. These were changes that would have been made anyway. The this this was the um, decisions by the uh, British Horse Racing Authority Jump Pattern Committee, um, and so they go through a process like the Flat Pattern Committee would of. Um, looking over their pattern program and either being required to because um, races are consistently not meeting their parameter over a three year, year period the average of the, the those horses that, that hit the frame being forced to um, downgrade uh, races choosing potentially to upgrade races but also um, you know potentially take taking taking a view on the program and some of the changes and my understanding was that it was the jump pattern committee that uh, was had announced those changes changes and it, the problem is that the, obviously the work of the quality jump racing review group rather overlaps with the jump pattern committee I think there are also some shared members on that on the the two groups and uh, because the jolly quality jump racing review group have had to base essentially wait whilst the uh, race courses the horsemen now the thoroughbred group and the BHA sort out what the BHA should be allowed to be in charge of. Um, in the meanwhile, the usual uh, workings of of the BHA, which involve the Jump Pattern Committee, have just carried on. And so these are, are their proposals. Some of these proposals have also come to the racing group as well. For example, the new qualification uh, for Class One and Two handicaps for novices. Okay, this is an interesting one. Um, four runs required. 
will this just not make these races less interesting and and have less classy unexposed horses in them and make them less appealing uh, as races to look forward to well it depends on whether you think classy horses should be running in pattern races i think they should be i think if horses are good enough to be running in pattern races that's where they they should be so right yes i do but in which case then we need to divert our money into the pattern races and away from the big valuable handicaps would be my yeah, argument. absolutely. That's exactly what we need to do. I, I, I very much agree with that. Um, I think the races that are left behind will be more competitive, not less competitive. It means handicappers can have have more evidence before coming to their handicap mark. It means that you know unexposed horses uh, potentially can't get in the necessarily qualifying number of runs and are uh, what might end up running in in pattern races instead. Might be running in the supreme like state man might be running in the supreme novices hurdle where he should have been rather than the, in the county hurdle where yeah, he ended up. With you, and with you he, completely. And, and he, same with Galopin des Champs the previous year, etc., etc. All of these, or, or you can come up with. I know they, they don't always have to be Irish as well. I mean, you know, there, there, there are there well, are. Get lots me out of, of here! Um, I can, any number you can you can exactly measure. exactly. So you know there are there are horses that um, are actually making those races less competitive, and so actually what you I think what you'll end up with is a more level playing field. And you and I were talking about this uh, a few moments ago, but um, you know some. Something like the Ebor, for example, you know, people often complain that three-year-olds can't get into the Ebor. Well, you know, partly um, th- this is one of the, the banner handicaps of, of the of the season, and there needs to be some sort of incentive for older horses of that type to stay in training in Britain. And the Ebor, um, in its new guys, but also in its old guys, was is one of the incentives to do that. And you know, if you had, you, there are lots of qualifying cr- criteria for for big handicaps, which exclude include uh very lightly raced horses who because just by sheer fact that they haven't raced uh, very often i'm not suggesting there's anything going on i'm just saying that the more evidence you have as a handicapper the more likely that your handicap rating will be nearer the horse's current ability than it is if you just have only say two runs to go on you know that 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 that's just a, a, a rule of handicapping so in the end you'll end up with more competitive races if horses are, are if handicappers are able well, and the and the public able to have a better look at those horses before deciding whether they they think that they are on a viable mark or not. Right, that's quite enough about handicaps. On <laughs> on onto the good stuff. The Judmont International next week. Baid, a maximum of seven rivals will face him. Given that two of the entries are from his own stable, that's pretty unlikely. We're going to get a field of eight. Um, just looking at the the thoroughbred racing commentary rankings, Baid sits atop them at one. Native Trail at 18, Mishrif at 21. So three either in or right on the border of the top 20 in the world. And then a big break to the rest. Alan Kerr, Dubai, Honest, Abasca Point, Lonsdale, High Definition. The biggest anxiety, Lydia, is surely Baid's scope on Monday, given that Maljun yes. is scope dirty. Yes, I mean, that 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 is concerning. Um, and uh, clearly, uh, William Hag is quite rightly taking absolutely no chances about that. So, yeah, that and that's an unfathomable, really, because um, although you know that is the maximum check that can be done, you know, something can still be underlying, something can still develop between the time of the scope and the time of running. So, yeah, that is a, that's an unknowable, I'm afraid, until until it actually happens. Either I, he either. Uh, one, he doesn't run, or two, he he then runs. That's that's when you really truly find out. Uh, Native Trail and Mishrif are w- more than worthy opponents. You've got a horse who's the European champion, Juvenile, and a horse in Mishrif who is the 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 richest horse in training. 
Okay, so Native Trail, um, uh, best performance yet, went third behind Vidani with Mishriff one place in front of him in the Eclipse. Uh, first try at 10 furlongs, so open to potentially some further improvement at that that trip. And clearly a high-class uh, three-year-old having been second in, in the Guineas and having won the Irish Guineas. Um, I think he will be uh, the main danger, personally. I uh, I don't know what Mishriff is anymore. Um it was a good run at Sandown. However, there was a a sense that he was a bit lazy. I, I'm not really sure. David Egan spoke afterwards about him being rusty. I really didn't like the way he stood still as the gates opened in the King George. Um, and I, I think about what happened in the Saudi Cup. And I look at the way in which he delivered again and again and again last season, and I just feel he's not the same horse. And I'm, I, I think of the the big three, he is the least likely to give his running. I mean, I think that Bayed can doesn't need to improve at the trip and can still beat Native Trail. However, things get interesting if he's not quite as good at the trip. Correct. The Jacques Lemarois at Deauville on Sunday is an absolute belter. State of Rest comes out best on TRC rankings. He's 12th in the world, reverting to a mile. Caribus is 16th, Inspiral is 52nd, Order of Australia is 91st, and all the others are in triple figures, including Prosperous Voyage and Light Infantry, both of whom have plenty more to offer. Pace is likely to come from Bathrat Leon, who set the, the pace in the Sussex Stakes, you would have thought anyway. And State of Rest, you'd think, might just get the perfect trip here. Not a particularly strong pace in the Sussex Stakes. Was it? Go a bit so, quicker this time, won't he? Yeah, and they'll be more wise to that as well if if connections want want a strong stronger pace. So uh, I don't think it would necessarily be as straightforward. There is state of rest as good as a mile? Question mark. I think he could be looking at his looking at his pedigree. He hasn't been really tested at a mile in this company, has he? Uh, no. I think it's an interesting race for him. I think it's the I think it's the right call. I think it's a fabulous call. I, I really like this horse. I think he's been underestimated this season. Uh, I think there are. Um, I think he's been opportunist to, to to some some degree, either you know how he's ridden or how he's been campaigned. And I think this is this is pretty serious. This race and at a trip over which he as yet is unproven. I mean, his his really good form has only really started regularly hitting that mark for at 10 furlongs. You know, he was beaten at list beaten at listed level, admittedly on his seasonal debut um last season as a three-year-old. Um and clearly he is better than he was before. But he does got he does have to prove himself that he is as good at uh, a mile as he has been over 10 furlongs this season. You know, much as I respect him, much as I like him and I really like the way he's being campaigned. Um Caribus has uh, of course missed the Sussex Stakes with a with a small setback. He's managed to win in different ways this season. I, I quite like that. I know you can pick apart the St James's Palace Stakes in terms of what might have happened if horses um, had had a, a a clearer passage behind him, notably, of course, Maljum. Um, but he still managed to find a way to win. And I like horses, uh, particularly at group one level, who find a way to win, no matter the way the race pans out. And in spirals on a retrieval mission, after a huge performance on a seasonal debut on fast ground in the Coronation Stakes, uh, a thumping of Spenderella, she was then below form behind Prosperous Voyage in the Falmouth. Um, Prosperous Voyage, you know, had chased at home a couple of times as a, as a two-year-old, was 
was likely to be a better three-year-old. So, I mean, it wasn't the biggest shock result that she t- turned out to be, not only the biggest danger, but to beat her. Um, did the race come too quickly after Royal Ascot? Was it two quick runs on on fast ground? You know, what what level of horses is, is in spiral beating? I mean, generally, I'm tending towards Caribus. Now, a very important sponsorship was announced yesterday. If you remember a couple of months ago on the on the podcast, we were lamenting the fact that Irish Champion Stakes, one of the most prestigious races anywhere in Europe, had left itself without a sponsor. That is no longer the case. A six-year deal has been struck uh, with Bahrain, with the Rashid Equestrian and Horse Racing Club. Their head of racing, Ed Veal, joins me now. Ed, you were in Leopardstown yesterday and announcing this deal. Just explain how and why this has come about. Morning, Nick. Um, I was. I was at, I was at Leopardstown actually for the, the Desmond Stakes, which is a race at the Bar and Turf Club. Uh, a sponsor and have a have a relationship with Irish Thoroughbred Marketing for that race. But uh, as you say, the, the bigger news probably was that we've just uh, agreed a six-year uh, deal and partnership with Horse Racing Ireland and Leopardstown to sponsor what is now the Royal Bahrain Irish Champion Stakes. And and so, what was the thinking behind you you stepping into the breach here, Ed? It's going to going to give your organisation yet yet higher profile on the global stage. But but why this race in particular? I think it was a really good fit. The way we're looking to build our international racing, and obviously our our feature race, the Bahrain International Trophy, a, a Group Three race over the, the same distance as the Irish Champion Stakes, with our main ambition to be Group One. Uh, you know, in the next five years, it was a it was a natural fit to to have a an association with what is one of the leading flat races in the world. How far away from international Group One status do you think the the Bahrain International Trophy is? Was a, a very very strong Group Three last year, almost up to to Group Two standard. Really strong Group Three. Um, you know, it was it was. It was competed by Group One horses. Uh, we're looking to to hopefully get to Group Two next year, and obviously after that, our attention can turn to Group One. We we won't get ahead of ourselves. We know we need to prove uh, for a number of years that it's of Group One quality, but that has to be the ambition. And creating these type of partnerships with with significant races will hopefully um, let the racing racing world know our ambitions. And and just how how broad is the scope of the ambition in Bahrain? The 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 international trophy day is is a fantastically in, enjoyable experience, and there's some fantastic horses running, as you said. You inaugurated the turf series last year, running from uh, December through through to February. Uh, how do you see that developing? Exactly, the, we're we're trying to build it from from the ground up and and show people what Bahrain has to offer. And, we're, we're inviting as many people to come and, and see what we have on offer. And the series is, was a really good platform for that. The, the International Trophy will obviously remain our, our flagship race. But by, by putting the series on it and inviting trainers to base themselves over, over the winter, I think it, it showcased that, we can, that we're not just a one-day-a-year one race and that, that people can base themselves on our own end. Um, compete for good prize money, um, race on a very fair and, uh, and good surface track, 
and you know it's it's just an opportunity to to showcase what we have Ed Veal there, in other uh, encouraging sponsorship news for Ireland, our friends at Fitzdares are getting stuck into the Royal Whip. Uh, Chief Executive uh, Will Woodhams joins me now. Will, you're expanding your portfolio. Tell us a little bit about you and the Royal Whip. Yeah, well, we did it after the, we sponsored it last year in COVID for the 200th anniversary, but this is going to be this year, the 202nd running of the oldest continuous race in Ireland. It's at the Curra. You know the Curra. It's phenomenal. And we're just keen to get a few more of our UK. Cape Hunters over there and obviously pick up a little business in Ireland. Um, I mean, this year it's the O'Brien Royal Whip, not the Fitzstairs Royal Whip, because every trainer seems to be called O'Brien in the race. Um, but it's going to be exciting. It's nice to see a Group 1 winning, uh, you know, Group one winning horse in Luxembourg racing. Um, I think it's going to be a great preview for the Irish Champion Stakes. Uh, I think if Luxembourg wins tomorrow and the Irish Champion Stakes, then it's a cert for the ARC. Um, off the record, we're going to boost the horse to to seven to one tomorrow to win this uh, to win the Royal Fitzes Royal Whip using the brand there and the Irish Champion Stakes because I just think it's got a great chance. It's Aidan O'Brien's one of his best three year olds, uh, so it's quite exciting. Yeah, it's a, a huge horse on the comeback trail after missing the bulk of the season after that encouraging third behind Nature Trail and Caribus in the Guineas. I think. Uh, William McCurry could ruin the party uh, with insinuendo, which I've had to written down phonetically at five to one. Uh, but we've seen quite a lot of money this morning um, on the O'Brien horse on Luxembourg. So it, I think it's going to be a fun race to watch. And I do think we should, more UK punters should get over to the Curra. It's a phenomenal race course. Now, handbrake on and take a sharp right-hander. We are going back to, to jump racing momentarily because it's not long until the career of the uh, ex-long-time assistant to Paul Nichols, Harry Derham, commences. In fact, it might start a little sooner than than he gave notice of when last we spoke on this podcast, but not quite from from the new premises, which aren't quite ready. But he, he might need to do something in the interim. He's with me now. Harry, how are you? How's it all going? Very good, Nick. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, just, you know, a few, few bits... Um... I suppose at the start of any business, there's um, little bumps in the road or little bits of challenges, um, and you know we've had a couple, so um, we just just wanted to come on and, and keep everyone up to date with what's going on, really. So, what are you doing? What, what's what's the situation? When do you think you can start to have runners? Uh, the plan um, is to start having runners at Christmas time, really, or just after. Um, so, bringing the horses in um, at the start of September. Um, obviously then gives me plenty of time to get them fit and ready um, they're all at Ed Bailey's at the moment who's who's done a great job sort of buying with me all summer um, so there's there's 28 of them there um, and obviously I didn't want to keep them out in the field October and November time so they're coming in in September um, I'm actually going to Frenchman's house stables in uh, Lambourne uh, just for probably two months I would guess because my place uh, in Boxford is, is looking great but not quite ready yet and um Obviously, with with a lot of real nice horses coming in, I don't want to um, go there before it's ready and and you know not be fully prepared. So that that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Frenchman's and um, get started, get the horses sort of pre-training and cantering, and um, get to a place where we're we're in a good spot for when they're ready to go over to Boxford. So in, in essence, you're doing exactly what James Horton 
has done on the on the flat. He's just waiting at the moment for the the brand new purpose built all singing all dancing yard to be built down the bottom of the hill in Midland, and and he's he's training just up the top temporarily from an established yard until he gets going. It sounds a, a very similar situation, but you're not going to have to wait quite quite as long. Yeah, that that is that is essentially it. Um, and you know, obviously, when when you're doing big builds and things, it it, it takes a long time, and um, there's a lot to be done at, at Boxford. So, um, you know, it's coming along really well, and and it's looking absolutely fantastic. And we're we're extremely proud of what we're um, in the process of creating, but um, it's just not quite ready yet. And obviously. Um, with a lot of nice horses to go in there, I, I want it to be absolutely right. So, you know, this for a couple of months, we'll we'll do the trick perfectly at Frenchman's, and um, it'll just give us a chance to get the horses going and uh, be ready to ready to go into the new yard. Really. Now, you've revealed the name of the person who's been instrumental in in setting up uh, the the new stable at, at Boxford when it's ready. J- just tell me a little bit about about her. Yeah, Caroline Sutton. She's been absolutely amazing. She um. They've, Caroline's got a uh, quite quite big estate in in Berkshire and um, has has been a big racing fan for a long time. Um, you know, I, I actually rode a couple of winners for, on a horse she owned a, a share in a good few years back now. But um, I've known, known her for some time. Her and her partner Woody, um, and they've been they've been absolutely fantastic. I mean, without their support, I wouldn't have been able to do this project. And um, you know, Caroline's very excited about it. She's already got a couple of horses with me and. Um, yeah, her her help is her help and and Willie's help has been amazing, really. Now everyone will be wanting to know: Can you reveal the names of of any horses or any and or any owners who might be joining you? Um, I've I've got I can tell you plenty of horses. I mean, I've I've bought quite a few um, privately, and I've I've bought quite a few at the sales this year. But a big, the exciting three-year-old the other day called Salvatore off the off the flat in France. Um, nice point-to-point in mare last season called Helen Claremont. We've bought plenty at a public auction as well. Uh, just this week, I bought a horse from France called Nordic Tiger. Um, so yeah, I've got I'm very lucky enough to have plenty of real good support. Um, you know, no one no one has sort of jumped ship from different yards or anything, but uh, lots of people have have come to support me, which is great and. I think the thing thing I'm most excited about really is is the fact that I've got quite a few owners that are completely new to racing, which um, I'm I'm really excited about because obviously you know that's that's what it's all about getting you know getting some good support and um, you know without having a runner I've been I've been very lucky for people to already get behind this project and uh, um, hopefully that will continue. Now, in conjunction with our friends at the Racehorse Owners Association, we are always keen to hear of any stories of owners who've had quite an interesting journey into the sport. Mike Madden is one such owner, and he has got his first horses in his own name this year. The best of them you'll know quite well, star of Lady M. She's only gone and won four, and she's amongst the leading fancies for the listed St. Hugh Stakes, which takes place at Newbury tomorrow. And Mike's with me now. Mike, a dream start, but where did it all start? <laughs> Morning, Nick. Yeah, uh, it was indeed a dream start. I mean, I go back quite a long way in uh, in horse race ownership. Um, well, certainly in horse racing, back to the days when they had turf accountants on the on the high streets uh, behind grey shrouded windows. But um, we've been myself and my wife have been through ownership of various syndicates and racing clubs and things like that. And then last year, we, we'd done quite well in business and we were in business with uh, Luke Lillingston from Mount Coote Stud. 
um, with the company Bionom.com. So we just said, well, let's just spend some money at the sales. So we spent two days at the book three sales at, at Newmarket um, to, to make our first purchase. And so you transition to, to ownership. Um, you, 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 you go out there to the, to the sales. Where do you start? <laughs> well, I, I got uh, the book three catalogue sent to me uh, by Tattersalls, and it's it's a huge book with very thin pages and one um, f- one yearling on each page. So I, I was because of the uh, I understood about the stallions because of the business interest, uh, and I sort of went through some of the pedigrees and marked some off as being potential. Um, I think where you, where you really start these days, if you've got a relatively small budget, is uh, fillies, because uh, the, the Great British Bonus gives you a fantastic incentive to buy a British filly for, you know, um, a, a potentially 20,000 bonus just for winning one race, which is way more than the prize money would ever be. Um, so we, uh, we, we, we earmarked fillies from, from the start. Um, and I, I went down to the sales on the Thursday morning, the two-day book three sale, and I met Luke uh, Livingston, and he had uh, he had also been doing his homework and marked several potential candidates off. And I think when I looked at my list compared to his, I think there might have been one that was on my list that was also on his list. So I discarded the rest of my uh, research. And like I say, we set a budget of around £20,000, um, but the first one that went into the ring that was on the list went for about 85, I think it was. So we were struggling a bit for uh, for quite some time. And you finally landed on, on, on Star of Lady M. Little did you know at the time Havana Gray would end up being a first season sire sensation. Tell me about the, the pleasure and enjoyment you've had out of her this season, Mike. Oh, she, it was incredible because um, we bought her around about 4.30 on the, on the Friday afternoon. We were almost ready to go home with nothing. Um, and we were going on holiday in April, and I, uh, I messaged uh, Jason Kelly at David O'Mara's yard and said, um, hopefully she's not going to run this uh, this week that we're on holiday. And he messaged me back and said, oh, no, she's going to run before that at Redcar. She's doing really well. She's, he sent me a video of her on the gallop. So we trekked off up to Redcar. Uh, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, we were the first ones there. Uh, the course wasn't even open when we got there. Um, and we went in and it was just a, a sort of a two-hour build-up of excitement and nerves waiting for her to appear. Um, fortunately, we got chatting to a few um, a few people that we knew and um, that, that sort of distracted us a little bit. But then you know, she was facing an odds-on favourite in Primrose Ridge, so we, we took our place in the grandstand and weren't really expecting, we didn't really know what to expect, but uh, she went on and won. And uh, it was the most incredible feeling in the world. It really was. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right in thinking there's, there's a book coming out later in the year about your, your ownership journey. That's right, yeah. I, I've been chronicling it since um, earlier this year, but it goes back to, well, from my beginnings all the way through to how we owned bits of uh, horses that ran at, Ut- at Utoxeter. And... Um, uh, through to our ownership, and it concentrates more on the 12 months from October at uh, the sales last year to October at the sales this year. Uh, and are you are you, are you are you a published author already, Mike? Yeah, I've published a, a book. Oh, I've published several books myself, but I've also uh, got a, a published book through um, Music Mentor. Um, when I, uh, I I wrote a book about a musician called Mike Sanchez, 
and interviewed people like uh, Bill Wyman and Robert Plant and all that kind of people just to, to, to fill in the book. Robert Plant wrote the foreword for it. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm hoping that, uh, that the star of Lady M Journey gives you a, a glorious final chapter. Mike Madden, thanks so much. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks to all my guests today. Lydia is still with me. Send you home with a winner. Uh, yes, and I'm going to surprise you again. Um, I am going to go for a sprint again. I mean, it worked really well for me last time I tried it, so I'm going to stick with uh, stick with that that formula. In the great St. Wilfred, I'm going to suggest that Snash can run really well, uh, can win, in fact, for Tim Easterby. Um, and David Allen, this horse, I think, is very progressive at six furlongs. That looks to be the horse's right trip. Um, and so I still think uh, it's on. Uh, he's on a very favourable handicap mark. That's the 2.50 on Saturday at Ripon, the great St Wilfred and the horse's snash. Who do you fancy for the consolation race? <laughs> well, I'm so glad to see. I mean, it, it, what a sensible decision! What a sensible decision to actually remove the consolation race. I just, I mean, in the current climate, I don't think consolation races are are working. They're just everything is telling racecourses they're not viable, and why they don't just have a race with similar conditions that is just opened at the at the um, in the normal way, and then they'll get a much more current field, but they can also allow horses that don't get into the main event to drop into it if they need to. Will the Air Bronze Cup survive this year? Uh, no. Probably a podcast title that won't appear anywhere soon, but... <laughs> Thank you very thank you very much for listening. Thank you Lydia. That was Friday August the 12th. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.